On this season of Mystery and Murder, we bring you a story so wild you couldn't make it up if you tried. Or could you? This is Dr. Phil diving deep on the case of Sherry Papini. You're listening to Supermom Missing. Months after her dramatic disappearance, an alleged kidnapping, things were seemingly quiet. New leads of Hispanic women snatching up young blondes to sell to cops just weren't coming in. Nothing was happening. Sherry and Keith had moved on, although she was still feeding him and investigators details of her abduction as she claimed they came back to her. Now, remember what I just said. They've moved on, things are quiet, but she is still feeding her husband and investigators details of her alleged abduction. The public had turned on her. And if you remember the coverage, people were starting to wonder if this woman's story was adding up at all. But she hadn't been charged or arrested and was laying low as far as the public was concerned. This went on, not for one year, not for two years. This went on for five years. She disappeared November 2nd, 2016. She was, quote, found November 24th, 2016. Five years have now passed with little attention as far as anyone knows. The story fades. The GoFundMe money is spent. Keith and Sherry go on with their lives. But investigators are still working to solve the case. We're a headline-driven society, and people tend to forget. But Sherry's story was far from over, and the craziest part of it did not even unfold until March 3rd, 2022. More than five years after this saga began, Sherry was arrested. Her kids now seven and nine, were at piano practice with their mom. A man came inside and told Sherry, hey, your car has been hit. He was really an FBI agent, and there was another one waiting outside to throw the cuffs on her. Now, get this. When they went to grab her, she screamed no and tried to run. She threw her cell phone 20 feet. Think about what's going through law enforcement's mind at this point. If this is someone who had really been kidnapped, if you thought that was even a remote possibility, the last thing you would do would be to ambush this person, which is parallel to a kidnapping. Think about it. Hey, come out on the porch with me for a minute. There's somebody out there lying in wait. They cuff her to take her away. That's essentially a kidnapping. This one just happened to be sanctioned because it was law enforcement. Why would they ever do this if they had any inkling in their mind, any possibility that she had, in fact, been snatched off the streets? That would be cruel. It would be traumatizing. And it would absolutely be the subject of a complaint if, in fact, her story had been true. Now, was this a subtle way of getting back at her for what she had put them through? Otherwise, they could have contacted her attorney. They could have just come and knocked on the door and said, Ma'am, you need to step out on the front porch. We're here to arrest you. They could have done any number of things, but no, they basically ambushed her. Now, an alternative is they wanted to get her away from her children, but you got to wonder what was going through their minds. In any event, they cuff Sherry Papini and they throw her in county jail. So how did this unfold? How did this happen? How did we get from this supermom that just supposedly was snatched off of a rural highway, gone for a couple of weeks, then reappears, and then nothing seemingly happens for five years. And why, oh, why five years? Because let me tell you, from a law enforcement side, from a prosecutor's side, when you're building a case, it makes all the sense in the world to dot your I's and cross your T's. 
Because trust me, you want to do things right. You really do. You want to be judicious. You want to move cautiously because you don't get two bites at the apple. You arrest, charge, and try somebody, you better have your ducks in a row because there's double jeopardy. You don't get a second chance. But on the other hand, time is not your friend. Memory decays, witnesses disappear, or even die. In 2020 alone, 3.38 million Americans died for all reasons combined. That means across five years, approximately 14 million people had died. Witnesses do die. They move, they disappear, they get hard to find. Evidence gets lost or destroyed. So time is not your friend. And I'm sure this wasn't the only thing that they had to do. It wasn't the only thing on their minds. There were a million other crazy stories that took over the headlines. It was during this time that COVID unfolded. You remember the story about the Turpin children locked in the house. Harvey Weinstein was exposed and the Me Too movement launched. Mexit happened. Donald Trump presidency. The George Floyd murder took place. The streets were filled with protesters. A lot happened during this time, so it wasn't like this was the big story, which I can promise you drove Sherry Papini crazy. We've been talking about and heard every detail of what Sherry said happened. Well, now I'm going to tell you actually what did happen, and I'm going to venture a guess. You're going to have a hard time wrapping your head around this one. For all of you thinking, yeah, this is a gone girl, you were right. She was paralleling gone girl. She planned her entire abduction start to finish. So how did detectives finally figure it out? Let's go through it. We always say hindsight is twenty twenty, but even then, even when you look back, you don't always get to see behind the curtain. But I'm going to pull that curtain back for you now and give you an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at what went on as investigators worked to get all this evidence together and connect the dots to the point that they felt like, okay, it's time to do it. It is time to go arrest this woman. We have an open and shut case. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet, and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Now, I want to ask you, before we start this, to really pay particular attention to how Sherry Papini reacts at certain points along the way, like when she's confronted with irrefutable evidence. Not just he said, she said evidence, but objective, verifiable, factual evidence. There are certain kinds of personalities that you just have to have 
in order to take the approach she took, and I'm going to tell you what that personality is, identify how it played in this case, and perhaps more importantly, how to spot it in your own life and what to do when you encounter this type of individual. Because trust me, they are walking among us. On September 16, 2019, detectives submitted a request for a DNA search. They had found unknown male DNA on Sherry's underwear. The same underwear she herself told them her kidnappers allowed her to keep on. Now, when DNA isn't in the system, they want to find if it's a match to anyone who is in the system. By that, I mean maybe the specific individual who owns that DNA is not in the system, but maybe a relative, someone who shares their DNA is in the system. Maybe not the criminal system, maybe some other system. While it might not get you as narrowed down to an individual as their actual DNA, it can put you sitting on a branch of the family tree. And oftentimes that's enough to find a connection to your case. Maybe it's a cousin or a brother or a sister who has crossed paths with your subject. And if you're like me, not a big believer in coincidence, that can tell you a lot. So they asked to run the DNA to see if it linked to any potential family members who had done one of those home family tree DNA tests as a means of identifying whose DNA was in her underwear. And remember, this was a fact that she volunteered to them. They got permission, and sure enough, found a potential relative was in the database. That person had two living sons. Detectives identified them both, and guess who one of those men happened to be? None other than Sherry Papini's ex-boyfriend. His name is James Reyes. Remember what I said? I don't believe in coincidences. And if you can even get in the family tree and find somebody that's got 25%, 30%, 40% DNA match, then you go say, okay, who, who is this? And you find out there's some person that's connected. Well, who are they connected to? Sure enough, it's her ex-boyfriend. Well, FBI special agents are on the case. They are combing through social media. They see on her ex-boyfriend's brother's social media pages a table similar to the one Sherry kept describing as the table she was strapped to when she was branded. As you remember, she said she was branded, and she gave multiple versions of why. Remember she said that the buyer wanted her branded? She said she was punished when she tried to escape. There were conflicting stories about that, but there was some branding that went on with a hot iron. And she was very specific about the table, enough so that when they're on her ex-boyfriend's brother's social media pages, there's the table that sounds a lot like the one she kept describing. Again. She volunteered these details. This is not something that she was interrogated harshly about. She volunteered this. Her own details just may wind up sinking her in the end and help seal her own fate. Now, I said let's pay attention to personality traits here. For five years, this case is not exactly burning a hole in the FBI's pocket, right? Things go cold after a matter of months, certainly after a matter of a year or two years. This has been five years. As I mentioned, during this five years, she would keep talking to her husband and to law enforcement, saying, oh, this came back to me, this came back to me, this came back to me. She doesn't want this to die. Now, why would that be? Let me tell you something. This was not her plan. Everything we're going to talk about in a minute, I'm going to explain to you, was a pre-plan. 
The real plan wasn't supposed to start until she was found. And this kind of personality, I'm not trying to diagnose her. I can't diagnose Sherry Papini. I've never met her. I've never done any psychometric profiling of her. But I can tell you on my short list of considerations would be traits from narcissistic personality, where somebody thinks they're special, they feel a need to be the center of attention, they look at things only from their point of view, they don't read the room, they don't ask themselves how this is playing on the other side, they are just egotistical enough to believe that the way they look at it is the way everyone else will look at it. Sociopathic personality tendencies, no remorse whatsoever for exploiting other people. And a borderline personality. These are people that cannot sustain relationships. They're very dramatic. They do things that are way off the charts of anything that would be considered normal dynamics within a relationship. They are volatile. They go to the extremes of emotion, all the way from being the most in love with you of anybody you've ever met to wanting to have nothing to do with you. They just vacillate and have an inability to sustain relationships. So I look at these three personality types, and I see traits from each one of them that are showing up here. And again, I'm not trying to diagnose her. I'm just telling you things that are running through my mind as I see someone that pulled a stunt, they got discovered, and they expected, hey, things are going to really start happening. They're going to be making a movie out of my life. They're going to want to be interviewing me and writing a book about my life and what happened to me, and I'm going to become maybe some big ambassador for victims and survivors and all of this stuff, but that isn't what happened. But that was her plan. All this other stuff was a pre-plan. This was a ramp-up to her real plan. Her real plan was to be famous. Her real plan was to be inspirational. Her real plan was to cash in on being a courageous survivor. But now the public is turning on her. That's not working. And I believe Sherry Papini's need to talk, need to be the center of attention, need to respond, and her inability to handle criticism was a big part of her undoing. We'll talk more about that later, but let's get back to the ex-boyfriend, Reyes. Investigators immediately find him and talk to him. He admits he helped Sherry run away. He proudly admits that. They had known each other since they were 13 or 14 years old. They had a long history together as friends. They had had a romantic relationship. In fact, they had previously been engaged. He said Sherry reached out to him, quote, out of the blue. She told him that her husband was beating and raping her, and she was just looking for a way to escape. And when she called him, let's look at this from his point of view. He can be the white knight here. She told Reyes that she had filed police reports, but the police were not doing anything to protect her. Now, this is consistent with the theme, right? She hasn't exactly held the police up to be admired so far. She's suspicious of them in her story, et cetera, et cetera. And that folds in with what she's telling them. Police aren't doing anything to protect her. They're not helping her. No reports had ever been filed against Keith. But again, if you're a narcissist, you just tell the story. You don't expect to be fact-checked. You don't expect anybody's ever going to follow up on that and see whether or not what you said was true. If it sounds good while you're saying it, that's all that matters. Now, the boyfriend claimed, look, I'm just trying to help her get away from her husband. I'm trying to be a good friend. This is the theme she's used all through this, right? She was going to be sold to law enforcement. She didn't want to talk to them. She just let them listen while she was talking to her husband. So when she calls Reyes, she's just playing the damsel in distress. She put on the victim hat, and more importantly, expect that nobody would ever hold her accountable for this. And he's apparently gullible enough to think, yeah, hey, I can help this woman fake a kidnapping and disappear, and that'll be okay, because she's got the moral high ground here. She's a victim. Now, her goal was to get sympathy and attention 
by claiming she's a victim of abuse. She's going to have to cover all of this once she gets discovered, which may be exactly why she wanted to get to her husband quick and start programming him. But again, she's played into the narrative that cops are bad, they're not helping, and maybe that's where I'm going to be sold. This is just a manipulation tool. Of course, she's the queen of victimhood. Now, when Papini first called her ex-boyfriend, he was at work. She told him she had a plan to run away to him. She kind of laid out the situation. And understand here what's happened. She's calling this guy and giving him instructions. She's telling him what to do. She's running this whole thing. He's going along with it. And she knows enough about this relationship that she must have expected, hey, I've got some sway over him. He, he still has some energy for me. He's going to want to be with me, so he'll go along with this if he thinks there's a future. So she tells him, get a prepaid phone to communicate with her. He says that she defies the plan for him to drive to Reading, and he agreed. He said Papini sent him sort of a care package that included the location where she wanted him to pick her up. Now, think about that. She had to have been working on this for weeks before she pulled the trigger. She sent him some stuff, had him get a burner phone, worked out a place for him to pick her up. This took some planning. All while she's having dinner every night with Keith, her husband, and her two little kids, and being super mom, she's living a double life. She's putting a smile on her face and doing all the things that she's been doing while she's planning this whole escape and rendezvous and pickup. He asked a friend to rent a car for him to use. He didn't say why he needed a car. Just, hey, I don't want it in my name. Would you, would you get this for me? He gets up early in the morning and drove a rented Dodge Challenger from Southern California up to Redding, California. Now, for those of you not familiar, that's not a short drive. It's several hours. And she sent him a text detailing where she wanted him to pick her up. And he described driving up the road, pulling up to Sherry, opening up the passenger side door of the vehicle, and folding the front seat down so she could get in the back seat where she laid down completely out of sight, and he drove straight back to Southern California. He only stopped a few times for gas and coffee, and she stayed in the back seat the entire length of the trip. He said they didn't do much talking. He remembered her telling him she was worried about her kids, but that she slept for most of the drive. During this time she was gone, she really never left his place. She asked him to pick up clothes for her to wear. So he went and got some sweats and socks and T-shirts from Target and TJ Maxx or Ross, wherever he was closest. Now, to keep up his pattern, he went to work every day while Sherry stayed at his apartment. He says he slept on a couch in the living room and gave her his room. He says that Sherry had a lot of private time and just wanted to be in the room with the door shut. Now, he wasn't there most of the time because he had other responsibilities, and he told investigators she asked if there was a way to seal the window up. So he boarded it up the way she described in police interviews. Now, the closet of the room the ex-boyfriend described as Sherry's room looked very similar to the closet she described in her previous interviews with law enforcement. So she was pulling her lies from the truth. Reyes said he believed Sherry was purposefully trying to lose weight while she was staying with him. He said she was not eating as much as she would. She would just minimize what she was eating. He said she was already tiny, but she wanted to lose weight, and he'd really question her on it. Now, remember what I said a few minutes ago. Why is all of this so important? Because, as I said, this was not her plan. She wasn't there to disappear as she had told her ex-boyfriend. 
She always intended to go back. This is just a pre-plan. The real plan doesn't start until she executes her reemergence. This is like a method actor. She's just getting ready to play the role of her life. You've seen this with movie stars that are playing a role and they'll lose down to some emaciated weight to play a part in a movie. Or they'll gain a bunch of weight to play a part in a movie. That's exactly what she's doing here. She has this all planned out. This is not her plan. This is just getting ready for what she has planned. She needs to lose weight. She needs to look like an escaped kidnap victim. So she is getting herself emaciated. And as I say, she has this all planned out about how she wants to present herself. Investigators ask Reyes, well, what happened to her hair? He told him she chopped that. He said he came home from work one day and she had just chopped it off. He said that was right after she got there. She'd only been there a few days and she chopped her hair off. Now, to support his story, he said some of his family members were aware she was staying there in secret and believed her story, that she was a battered wife hiding from her dangerous husband. And, of course, law enforcement talked to those family members, and they all confirmed that. Now, this is, from one point of view, pretty gullible on his part, but let's think about it. We do a lot of work with domestic violence, and there are women who go off the grid because they fear for their lives. And if they go somewhere to their mother's house or family member's house, they're easy to find. So they have to go off the grid. If someone shows up and convinces somebody from an earlier time in their life that they're being abused, that they fear for their life, that they need to hide out, if you care about them and you like them, you're going to want to help them. Let me tell you something that might bother you a bit. We tend to believe people we like. And we like people who like us. So if you complete the algebra of that dynamic, we believe people who like us. Here's somebody that calls you out of the blue. You've been engaged to before. It didn't work out. They're in trouble. They reach out to you and say, oh, I need your help, please. You're the one I called. Well, that's music to someone's ears. You like them. You trust them. You've reached out to them. And so you have a positive bias. We tend to believe people we like, and we like people who like us. So that means we believe people who like us. And there you go. He's believing her. It seems naive from where we sit, but if you stand in his shoes, it's not so hard to understand. What is hard to understand is where did these severe and horrifying injuries come from? How did that happen? Well, when they asked him about that, he knew all about the injuries. And he said Sherry did them to herself while staying with him. Now, let me explain something here. We're often frustrated when Law enforcement is not completely transparent about what they know, and sometimes they seem like they don't have a clue. Well, they may have a lot of clues they're not sharing because there's certain information that they don't want the public to know because when they interview certain people that could have been involved and they find out that they know things that nobody else knows, that can tell them, yeah, they were there. There's no other way they would know that. And that's what happened here. They asked him about these injuries, and he knew about those injuries. He knew what they were. He said she did them to herself. He said she hit herself to create bruises and burned herself on her arms. Now, he admitted he helped her create some of those injuries, although he said he never laid a hand directly on her. For example, she told him, bang a puck off my leg. 
So he shot a puck off her leg lightly. He did not help Papini burn her arm and said, that was self-inflicted. I didn't burn anything on her arm there. He admitted to investigators he was confused by her injuring herself. He stated, there's not too many people that come up and say, hurt me. I'm not physical ever with women. I mean, I just don't. He said Sherry didn't start creating these injuries on herself until close to the time she said she had decided to leave him and go back home. And he described to investigators how Sherry asked him to brand her. Now, this seems a little inconsistent with him saying he never laid a hand on her. I guess technically that's true. But he did go to Hobby Lobby and get a wood-burning set. She didn't come because she didn't want anybody to spot her. He used cash to purchase the tool, described it as a small plug-in similar in size to an electric toothbrush, and the letters snapped into the top of it, and then the rod heated up like a soldering iron. He said Sherry sat on the floor next to an electrical outlet so they could plug the tool in, and then pulled her shirt up so that he could make the brand. She told him what phrase she wanted burned onto her skin. Now, he couldn't remember the phrase, but Sherry told him it had meaning to her. He said she was very stoic because she never complained about the pain. And let me tell you, you've ever grabbed a hot pan off the stove, you know that hurts. The details of the branding on Papini's right shoulder were not made known to the public. So investigators knew this statement to be true. Again, why they're not always forthcoming about everything they know. Now, again, let's go back to what kind of personality you're dealing with here. You got to ask yourself, what's going on in this woman's mind that she's capable of this? And also, what's going through his mind? that he's sitting in the floor branding a woman with something he got at Hobby Lobby. Just think about in your own life how weird things would have to get. Picture yourself sitting in the floor of your den branding somebody you know with something you got at Hobby Lobby. It's just not part of your day. Clearly, he has energy for her. Does he want her back? Does he think he can get her back? Has she put him in his own mind on this big white horse that he's riding in and saving her? We now know she's just leading him on. She never intended to stay gone. So why is she doing all this? She's doing all of this because her plan is about to start. She's just setting herself up, as I said, to play the biggest role of her life. Now, Reyes said he wasn't sure of Sherry's intentions during her stay with him. He believed, he hoped, they might end up in a romantic relationship again. I mean, who knows what he was really thinking? He may not even know what he was really thinking, but what he knows is she's here now, and she wasn't here a year ago, but she's here now with me. But I'm sure much to his chagrin, or maybe not, <laughs> maybe things had gotten so crazy that shortly before Thanksgiving 2016, Sherry asked him to take her home. I mean, who knows? Maybe in his mind he was saying, yeah, okay. But she said she missed her children. So they made the drive without stopping once again. Sherry stayed in the back seat of the rental car for the entire length of the trip. Took about seven hours. She had stuff in a bag with her and used these items to bind her own wrist and ankles, including a chain. Now, before she left his place, she bagged up anything that could be traced to her and threw the bag of her belongings in the dumpster outside. <laughs> really? Just threw it in the dumpster outside, but I apparently got away with it. You'd think she would throw it somewhere else. But then he just dropped her off on the side of the country road, a dark one with no lights, completely 
deserted, abandoned, and barren. After he dropped her off, he drove seven hours back to Orange County and attended Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> at his aunt's house. Just another day in November, I guess. I, <laughs> I, I just dropped a woman who chained herself up by the side of the road past the turkey. Who knows what was going through his mind? As I say, at some level, he might have thought, this is not the Sherry I remember. She's emaciated, whacked her hair off, burned herself, punched herself. Yeah, maybe it's good I dropped her off past the turkey. Who knows? He maintained he believed he was helping out a friend, and it did not occur to him that he could get any trouble until he was reading news stories regarding her disappearance and her allegations that she had been kidnapped. At that point, he must have thought, well, wait a minute. Is she going to accuse me of kidnapping her? <laughs> I did brand her with a tool from Hobby Lobby. He had to be thinking, yeah, I don't want to be volunteering the information about this, which is probably why he didn't come forward. But let's think about what the fantasy in her head must have been. It must have been so rich. You know she's seen the movie Gone Girl. You know she knows about Elizabeth Smart. You know she's seen the adulation that she has experienced from the public. There's something called a copycat phenomenon, the contagion effect. We worry about that when we see teen suicide. It's why we're very careful how we present them on the air, because we don't want to glamorize or in any way make it seem like something someone would want to have their family experience, because they do come in clusters. There is a contagion effect. But think about what must have been going through her head. Okay, I'm going to show up emaciated, burned, branded, hair chopped off, bruised, and chained up. What a great photo op. How great is this? But then it just didn't play out like that. No movie, no book. Neighbors are throwing the bullshit flag. She just somehow or another is not getting the payoff, which is why, in my opinion, she's the one that kept calling the law and giving them new facts to keep the story alive. Because, on the one hand, this thing was dying out. There's a good chance she could have just kept her mouth shut, resumed her life, and gotten away with this. There could have been maybe some statute of limitations that expired. She could have faded, and other stories, like I mentioned before, could have taken over the mainstream, and she could have moved on. But she couldn't let that happen. Now, after the investigators talk to this ex-boyfriend, they bring her back in on August 13th of 2020. So it's been almost four years. They have her husband, Keith, sit in on the interview. Now, think about this from her standpoint. Any reasonable person would be going, uh-oh, trouble here. They've, they've found where I was. They've talked to my ex-boyfriend. I got my husband sitting here. I've been telling him all of this stuff. Now they got me with him there. That's pressure. And they've got some facts now. So at the beginning of the interview, they state, and this is a quote from the police report, all we want is truthful statements because it's a crime to lie to federal officers. Understood? And she nods her head in agreement. So I want to share with you some excerpts from the report of this interview. Investigators asked Capini if she could detail the differences in her two abductors, and she stated falsely, the younger one is the one that let me go and was the nicer of the two. The older one was really abusive and really mean and is the one that did all the really terrible things. 
So they show Papini a series of photographs from her ex-boyfriend's residence. And she falsely denied it was a location she was at when she was missing. So at this point, she's got to know, uh uh-oh, they have found Reyes. They know where I've been. They have pictures of his inside of his house. So she knows this. Now, they then get down to details. They show her a picture of the closet in her ex-boyfriend's house that has the pole through the shelving. And the picture that Papini drew of the closet with the pole through the shelving that she created in previous interviews with law enforcement. So previously, she's drawn this picture of a closet with shelving that has a pole going up through it. Fairly specific. And they're now showing her a picture of her ex-boyfriend's closet with exactly that circumstance. She responds, It's a little bit different, but excuse my language, it's pretty fucking similar, but it's different. It didn't look like that. It just didn't look like that. Well, they showed her a photograph of the window in the room the ex-boyfriend described as the one he turned over to her. And she says, well, I feel like this wood paneling is too thick. I remember it going all the way up to the window is what I'm having trouble remembering. They showed her a photograph of the bathroom at the ex-boyfriend's residence, which matched the layout Papini had previously described to law enforcement. She responds, I mean, this doesn't look like the bathroom to me, but the order is, yes, this is the type of order, but this is not what it looked like to me. There was tile in the tub. There was a crack. So they showed Papini a photograph of the tile in the ex-boyfriend's bathroom where it was cracked. Papini stated, I don't know. Investigators then explained they were showing Papini the photographs of the house they had discovered she had been staying at, and they had spoken to the family who knew that she was there. She responded, Oh my God. Investigators asked Papini if she wanted her husband to stay in the room. Well, she asked if she and her husband could speak privately. So the investigators left the room. Little inexplicable to me unless they were listening outside the room, but nonetheless, I'm just telling you what happened. When investigators came back into the interview room, they asked Papini if she wanted her husband in the room, but she would not answer. So they just continued with the interview and said the only way to control things is for us to know. She replied, I know. I don't want you to find her. She's the reason that I get to see my children every day. Well, they responded, hey, we agree, but we're not going to find her. Papini stated, I don't want to get her in trouble. Now, you have to understand, Papini knows that there's no woman to find. She knows that her supposed statement, I don't want you to find her, I don't want to get her in trouble, these are what are called convincing statements. They're off point. They're not responsive to the questions. She's just trying to show, look what a grand person I am. She helped me escape. Yes, she kidnapped me. Yes, she held me prisoner. Yes, I have all these injuries. Yes, I feared for my life. Yes, I was taken from my husband and children. But I don't want to get her in trouble. That's how grand of a person I am. That's how magnanimous a human being I am. To which investigators say, yeah, we're not going to find her. (laughs) Obviously, because she doesn't exist. Papini stated, I don't want to get her in trouble. Yeah, okay. Investigators then told Papini that the DNA evidence found on her clothing at the time of her reappearance 
belonged to her ex-boyfriend and that Papini was not abducted but had asked her ex-boyfriend to pick her up and she just responded, no. When investigators asked if that's not what happened, what did happen, Papini answered, I don't know. No, there is no way it's my ex-boyfriend. There's no way. There's no way. Investigators asked why she was saying it was not her ex-boyfriend. She replied, because he loves me. We were friends. There's no way. Now, you have to understand, having spent a lot of time detecting deception, I spent a lot of time hearing what isn't said and analyzing deflection. And kind of what she's sort of vaguely implying here is, if you're telling me he was behind this whole thing, there's no way. Because he loves me. He would never orchestrate my kidnapping. She's answering a question that wasn't asked or implied. That is not what they're saying. So when they directly ask whether the ex-boyfriend came and got you because you asked him to, cutting through the deflection, she replied falsely no. When asked when was the last time you had contact with your ex-boyfriend, she lied and said, well, it was before her abduction. She was asked when she last saw her ex-boyfriend. She said, I don't know. It was forever ago when I lived in Southern California. Another lie. So they say, you're saying since you have been married, you have not called your ex-boyfriend, Reyes. And she responded falsely, no, I haven't called my ex-boyfriend. At which point, the investigators explained that phone records and DNA evidence showed that Papini had, A, been in contact with the ex-boyfriend, and, obviously, in his physical presence because she had his DNA in her underwear. And again told Papini, lying to federal agents is a crime. Now, investigators explained that the ex-boyfriend provided details that no one else could possibly know if they had not been with her those days. Remember, Keith is sitting right there. The police believe that he was hearing a lot of this for the first time. And she continued to deny that she ran away with her ex-boyfriend, that she called him and planned this with him and had him come pick her up. Now, once he left the room, Papini admitted that she and her ex-boyfriend did talk a little bit before and said, when I went out of town for work, I talked to other guys. I made a mistake and I talked to other men and I shouldn't have. And she continued to say she made a mistake for talking to other guys and said, I am horrible. Now, let me tell you what she's doing here. This is what's called a modified mea culpa in order to buy credibility. And let me explain what I mean by that. When you're in an interrogation situation, you can buy credibility with the examiner by admitting to certain things that put you in a bad light are difficult to admit but are not actionable. Okay, what I'm saying is if you're under investigation for murder, you can say, you know, I, I'm just going to admit to you, I, I, I've got a temper and I say rude things. I've said rude things to to the victim. I've said rude things to his wife, and I, I'm not proud of that. And I admit it. You know, it just makes me look like a small person, but I, I admit it. Well, what are you doing? You're making admissions. It's a mea culpa. You're saying, yeah, you, you got me. I, I, I didn't like him, and I'm ru- I've been rude to him. 
But none of that's actionable. You're not on trial for being rude. You're on trial for murder. And so a jury can often look at that and say, well, you know, he or she said some pretty unflattering things about themselves, and they didn't have to say that, but they did, so they seemed pretty genuine to me. That's a tool of a really manipulative sociopath. They will give you a little in order to deflect from the issue at hand. So what she's saying here is, now that her husband's gone, she said, okay, I, now that it's just us, I did talk a little bit before, and I didn't want to say it in front of him, but I did. And when I went out of town for work, I, I talked to other guys. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I'm horrible. That's meant to buy credibility. It's like she's being authentic with us. But she went on to say, it can't be Reyes. But then she didn't provide any further information to them about her time with the ex-boyfriend in Southern California. So even in the face of phone records and his testimony about facts that he couldn't have known if he wasn't there with her for that time, she stands her ground. And that is a narcissistic tendency. It's a sociopathic tendency. It's immature. It's like, okay, you're going to believe me or you're lying eyes. <laughs> I know you got my phone records. I know you got him telling you stuff he could only know if he was there, but I'm going to admit to some stuff that's not actionable, and I'm going to expect you to believe me because I'm kind of cute. It just takes a certain kind of personality to be that brazen. Now, through all of this, in the face of this overwhelming, irrefutable, objective evidence, not he said, she said, not the ex-boyfriend said this and she said that, but again, an excellent example of why they withhold information. He didn't read this in the paper. The only way he could know it if he was there. He wrote something on her arm with a only guy from Hobby Lobby. That wasn't public. He couldn't know that unless he was there and did it. But even in the face of that, in the face of phone records, in the face of pictures that she had described as being somewhere else, she still did not at any point throughout the interview disavow her repeated statements that two Hispanic women kidnapped her, nor did she ever admit that the ex-boyfriend had picked her up and that she had resided at his home during the period that she was reported missing. Now, after this interview... Phone records showed that she tried to call him four times. I'm sure she was just wanting to know, hey, how are things? She clearly wanted to try to convince him to change his story. She wanted him to recant. But apparently, he wasn't engaging. Well, let's fast forward to the interrupted piano lesson. This leads prosecutors to charge Sherry with 34 counts of mail fraud and one count of lying to the FBI. Of course, that one count of lying to the FBI was rather symbolic because she lied to different agents and could have been charged with every single time she opened her mouth to one of those agents. If convicted on all the counts she was charged with, she could spend up to 25 years in prison and find a half a million dollars. Now, Keith Papini isn't facing any charges in this case, and neither is James Reyes, the ex-boyfriend, with whom she clearly stayed those 22 days, plus had a 14-hour round trip in the backseat of his car. Prosecutors say Papini bears sole responsibility, and that is a wise decision on the part of these prosecutors because this woman was clearly the puppet master. She planned this thing out. She used these people without consideration for its impact on them or the jeopardy in which it might place them. So she's arrested and put in county jail. She spends five days there, but her family stays in her corner. They hire a PR team and issue a statement. So who did they hire as a PR team? and? Why a PR team as opposed to just a criminal defense lawyer? Well, 
you got to think about who I'm describing that you're dealing with here. So who's the firm they hire? Well, they hired the same team that handled Elizabeth Smart's PR after her headline-grabbing kidnapping. Sure, it was just a coincidence. In her family's eyes, they still see her like Elizabeth Smart. Now, Elizabeth Smart was actually kidnapped. She was actually held prisoner. She was actually assaulted by her abductor and his wife. She was held for nine months. But they see her on the same plane as Elizabeth Smart. Here's the statement. We love Sherry and are appalled by the way in which law enforcement ambushed her this afternoon in a dramatic and unnecessary manner in front of her children. If requested, Sherry would have fully complied and come to the police station, as she has done multiple times before, where this could have been handled in a more appropriate way. Sherry and Keith have cooperated with law enforcement's request despite repeated attempts to unnecessarily pit them against each other, empty threats to publicly embarrass them, and other conduct that was less than professional. We are confused by several aspects of the charges and hope to get clarification in coming days. End of quote. Well, they did get that clarification. Sherry's attorney requested that she be released immediately. He told the judge he was concerned about the conditions in the jail. you got to remember this was during the COVID pandemic, so there was chaos everywhere, including in the prison system, which is overcrowded, and there was a spread of illness inside the penal system, even though she was in isolation. He said she did have food allergies and had only been able to eat part of an apple since her arrest, which had been going on five days. Eventually, a decision was made to release her on $120,000 bail. Well, after the bond hearing, this had to be a pinnacle for Sherry Papini because it is a madhouse outside the courthouse, and reporters are swarming her. Now, there are different kinds of currency in life. You can have monetary currency, social currency, emotional currency, spiritual currency, all kinds of currency. She had to be a millionaire on this day because it is a madhouse outside the courthouse. Reporters are all over her. Friends and family are waiting for her on the street. But she's not liking the questions. She's not liking the innuendo. She's not liking what people are saying to her or shouting at her. So this quickly pivots on her, and she pulls a sweatshirt over her head and is sobbing. Reporters are chasing her and yelling questions, and her friends and family are shielding her. But guess who's missing? Keith. Her husband, Keith, is not there shielding her. He's not there shepherding her to the car. Now, understand, for much of this five years, he has stood by her side. Cops have known for some time that she's been cheating on her husband. She tells them when he leaves the room that She's been talking to other men as part of her deflection. At this point, she's less concerned about maintaining her marriage than she is maintaining her freedom. So he goes by the wayside, and once again, she's interested in number one, and number one in her book is Sherry Papini. When it gets down to it's him or me, she chooses Sherry Papini and uses as a deflection with these police officers, yeah, I've been talking to other men. Now, you can translate talking any way you want. I'll leave that to you. But she says that to them. He finally sees egg on his face. Not only that, Sherry has betrayed her children because she left them. And what are they saying to themselves? Then when she comes back and they're hearing all of this from the neighbors, they're now seven and nine years old. They're not. Idiots, they hear the talk. They know what's being said at school. 
And the investigator revealed that he was there when Keith learned the truth, that his wife had been lying to him for years. The investigator said, quote, everybody has their choice of what they want to do to forgive. And if that's his choice, then God bless him. Keith Papini made another choice. He filed for divorce. In his divorce filing, Keith Papini described a living hell for him and his two children that kept his life in turmoil for five and a half years. Quote, for a substantial time, we received anonymous messages, hate mail, and even death threats. The children have now learned that their mother lied to them about her disappearance, lied to them about how she was abused by two Hispanic women, and lied to them about her arrest. The fact that their mother lied to them on such a major issue is something they and I are having a hard time dealing with. All of this was predicate to him asking for sole custody of the children. Prosecutors called Papini's kidnapping hoax deliberate, well-planned, and sophisticated. She was still falsely telling people she was kidnapped, months after she pleaded guilty to staging the abduction and lying to the FBI about it. Now, did you hear what I just said? She has pled guilty to staging the kidnapping and lying to the FBI, but is still telling people on the street that she was kidnapped. Now, you say, how could she do that? Well, I'll tell you how she can do it, because when you have these narcissistic traits, you only see things from your point of view. You don't read the room. You don't ask yourself, how is this being heard? How are people balancing this out? Prosecutors said Papini's ruse harmed more than just herself and her family. An entire community believed the hoax and lived in fear that Hispanic women were roving the streets to abduct and sell women. In a responding court filing, her own defense attorney described Sherry as outwardly sweet and loving, yet capable of intense deceit. He went on to say Miss Papini's chameleonic personalities drove her to simultaneously crave family security and the freedom of youth. Obviously, he's trying to present her as a conflicted individual who's experiencing this tug-of-war between good and evil inside her head. The wounds were a manifestation of her unsettled masochism and, quote, self-inflicted penance. Each lie demanded another lie. Well, Sherry signed a plea deal with federal prosecutors. The plea agreement mandated she pay more than $300,000 in restitution. She entered guilty pleas to one count each of lying to a federal officer and mail fraud. As she entered her plea, she wiped her nose and tried not to cry. How do you feel today, the judge asked. I'm sorry, Your Honor, Papini answered. I'm sad. I feel very sad, Your Honor. I feel very sad. Were you kidnapped, he asked. No, Your Honor. Did you lie to government agents when you told them you were kidnapped? Yes, Your Honor. Those were the first words of truth we heard from this woman in a long time. In a statement released by her attorney, Sherry said she was deeply ashamed of myself for my behavior and so sorry for the pain I've caused my family, my friends, all the good people who needlessly suffered because of my story, and those who worked so hard to try to help me. I will work the rest of my life to make amends for what I have done. Just three months ago, this years-long ordeal came to a close. In September, Sherry Papini was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison for faking her own kidnapping. The sentence she handed to her children and family, left to deal with this betrayal, 
is likely much, much longer. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, was this a just outcome? 18 months, $300,000 fine. Will that ever get paid? Probably not. 18 months, how much of that will she do? I'm not sure how the law works in that regard. You're probably also wondering, what will she perpetrate next? Are these people capable of change? Well, the prognosis is not great. It depends on what happens during this time that she's in prison. With good aggressive therapy, sometimes these people can be helped. Other times, therapy can actually be detrimental because it tells them how people actually respond when they care about other people, when they do have empathy, when they do have remorse. Because those that have some of the traits that I've described really lack the ability to stand in other people's shoes and recognize the pain they can cause when they do the manipulative behaviors that she has admitted to doing. Sometimes therapy tells them, here's how someone unafflicted by this sort of disorder would respond. And it just makes them harder to spot. Not always, but sometimes. Right now, this would not be somebody that I would seek to put on my staff, I can tell you that. Sherry Papini has begun serving her prison sentence. She's currently an inmate of Federal Correctional Institution, Victorville. This is a medium security federal prison in San Bernardino County, California. I guess we shall see. I want to thank all of you for spending this time with me as we have deconstructed this case. I hope it's been informative. I hope it's given you some tools to help spot these kinds of people in your own lives. Thanks for joining in, and please join us on the next case we dig into on mystery and murder, analysis by Dr. Phil.